0: All right, so I've had a number of guys ask me ever since we started promoting the series, why the title, or what does it even mean? They think it's contradictory because it's when the godly live godless lives, and I've had several guys go, "That, that's impossible. Um, no, it's not. It depends on how you define godly. Um, godly, to me, is what we should be and what we are in the sense that I am in Christ, I'm a believer in Christ, I've placed my faith in Christ, I'm a son of God, therefore I am godly. That doesn't mean I live godly all the time, right? It doesn't mean you live godly all the time, but I am a godly individual. I belong to God, and so I should live godly, but the truth is because I'm a fallen human being and I still have a sin nature, I can live godless. And the hyphen's there for a reason. It's not so much that I live in an ungodly way, I do ungodly things, it's I I live as if God doesn't exist. It's what some have labeled uh, practical atheism. I I believe in God I say I love God I say I worship God but then I live so much of my life as if God doesn't exist how I don't talk to him I don't include him in my decision making I just live my life I'm a godly individual living as if I'm godless as if God's not there and we all do it and one of the things in studying the life of Solomon is we're going to see that he lived even though he was a godly man a wise man He lived as if God didn't exist, and he lived as if other gods were more important than the one true God. So I think there's a lot for us to learn from the life of Solomon as we dig into his life. So what I want to do to set up tonight, we're going to be in 1 Kings a little bit, and then we're going to jump into the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, but I want to set the stage of who wrote this book and why it's important. So it's written by Solomon. Now, there are theologians who disagree with that, who say, no, it wasn't written by Solomon, and they have a ton of reasons, and believe me, I've read so many of their commentaries, and they'll use a lot of different reasons for why they say he didn't write the book. It was written about him, but it wasn't written by him. Well, I'm gonna go with what the book says. It was written by Solomon. He refers to himself throughout the book, and, and I think it's a book that's clearly written by him, and there are a vast many theologians who believe it was written by Solomon, and the early church fathers believed it was written by, church Sol- by uh, Solomon, and I believe it's written by Solomon, and that's critical to understanding the book. So we're going to look at the fact that he wrote this, and he wrote it late in his life, very late in his life. You all know that he was the son of King David, Right? he took the throne from his father it was handed to him on a silver platter this guy Solomon had life literally handed to him didn't have to work for it didn't have to fight for it unlike his father David who had to fight for his kingdom who spent years running from King Saul before he ever got to the kingdom Solomon had it handed to him and he became the second king of Israel one of the things that jumps out in his life is how blessed he was how much God had given him but what also jumps out is how he walked away from God uh, how he failed God in so many ways he's the king who eventually his kingdom was split in half and we ended up with a divided kingdom Israel in the north and Judah in the south he started well ended poorly Here's here's what I want you to know, because this is what I want me to know. End well. Starting well is great, but if you don't end well, it doesn't matter. If you start a marathon at a six-minute pace and you're gassed out at mile one, who cares? You you didn't finish. You didn't reach the objective. Solomon is a consummate picture. He's the poster boy for finishing poorly. When I die, I want to have finished well. And I want those who come to my funeral, who speak at my funeral, my kids, my wife, anybody who's still alive, my friends, my co-workers, to say he finished well. Didn't finish perfectly, but he finished well. And again, Solomon's going to paint a picture for us that shows that not everybody who's chosen by God not everybody who's blessed by God ends well and that's a pretty sad statement so here's what second Samuel 12 says it sets up the scenario that's going to show us how Solomon even came into being and it involves the story of David and Bathsheba which you're familiar with David should have been at war he was the king but he stayed at home. He was on his rooftop. Everybody else is in battle. He's on the rooftop. He looks down, sees a woman bathing next door on her rooftop. Why she's doing that, I'm not really sure, but she was. He saw her. He sins for her. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then he tries to cover it all up (coughs) to the point of having her husband, Uriah, who was one of his faithful soldiers, put to death. And then he marries her. And as a result... The son they had, God took his life. That son who was born because of their affair, their immorality, was taken by God. And this is where the story picks up. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And that means love by the Lord so this sets the stage for Solomon the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes he is the son of David he's the second son born to Bathsheba and he's loved by God and that's really important to understanding his life he's loved by God and he's going to be set apart by God for a very special purpose this isn't some lost guy this isn't some pagan this is the son of the king and he's loved by God. So in 1 Kings chapter 2 here's what it says when David's time to draw die drew near He commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So here's David at the end of his life, nearing death, and he calls for his son Solomon, and he tells him live your life well. Seek God. Obey God. Be, be obedient. Do what you're called to do so that you can enjoy the blessings of God. He's already loved by God. That's what his name means, Jedediah. But see, David wants him to live his entire life with God's love all over him. But he calls him to obedience. He calls him to stay strong. And then we see in verse 10 he dies. David dies. He sleeps with his fathers. He's buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. He's handed a very, very strong kingdom. David had basically conquered the Philistines. He had brought peace to the region. And so here's Solomon. He takes the throne and literally has to fight no battles. He's, he's really got no more enemies. He's got a kingdom. He's got wealth. He's got everything a young man could imagine. It's just handed to him. And all he has to do is stay faithful to God. That's his call, that's his charge. And we see in verse 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now we're beginning to move into his life, and we're beginning to see some features about his life that are going to stand out when we read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it tells us that he loves the Lord. God loves him, he loves God. And he's walking in the ways of David. But then it throws in a little interesting tidbit here that it says that he made offerings at the high places. What's a high place? Well, in that context, in that day, high places were typically pagan altars built by the pagan nations that lived in the land before the Israelites got there. And they were supposed to have all been removed, but they hadn't been. Now, some commentators will say, well, he didn't have anywhere else to sacrifice, so he sacrificed at the high places, and it doesn't really matter where he did it, he was doing it to God. No, it does matter because Shiloh was where the tabernacle was. There was a place to offer sacrifices that would have been appropriate, but he's offering them on the high places. He is offering them to God, but he's doing it in an improper way. loves God, trying to be obedient, but already you're seeing some skirting of the rules, doing things his way. And that's going to continue in his life. So it says the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. This has always amazed me. I think I've always been jealous. Why hadn't God ever come to me and said, Ken, whatever you want. Whatever you want. Blank check. Oh, I know why he's never done that. Because he knows I'm a fool and I would ask for all the wrong things. But here, here he is. He's, he, he comes to him. He loves him. Even though he's doing some things not quite the right way, God still comes to me and says, what do you want? What would you ask for? I know what you'd ask for. Health, wealth, power, never get sick, that my wife would obey me, that, uh, you know, whatever you got in your brain, you've got a list that you would have, and it wouldn't take you long to develop it, but Solomon says... You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son, me, to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. You at least see some humility in this guy. That He's like, you know, I don't know that I'm equipped or qualified to do this job. I can't imagine being the son of David. It, it wouldn't have been an easy path to follow to be his replacement when he was such an amazing man, a man after God's own heart. He says, I don't know how to go out or come in and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. You, you begin to see in him an understanding of I'm probably not quite equipped to do this job. It's a big country. It's a powerful nation. He's got all kinds of things resting on his shoulder that he feels are too great for him. So what does he ask for? He says, give your servant an understanding mind. He asks for wisdom, is literally what he's asking for. I want to know how to discern between good and evil. How how to make wise choices, because i got to lead these people. i got to follow my dad, and I don't want to screw it up. So he asks for the right thing. And I love how God responds. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. What's God telling him? You're going to be the wisest man who has ever or will ever live. That's a pretty powerful statement. I give you also what you have not asked for. This is where it really gets nice both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, now what does he do? What does God say? He basically repeats what David had said before he died. He gives him a caveat. He gives him a kind of a disclaimer. He says, If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So what's he saying, I'm going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you riches and honor, even though you didn't ask for them, but you need to be obedient and walk in my ways and be faithful to what I've called you to be faithful to. Then I will lengthen your days. Now what's really interesting about this is when, as we dig into his life in Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that he wrote Ecclesiastes late in his life. He lived as, as long as probably 70 years. And even though he wasn't faithful all his life, and even though he did some things that were not very godly, God still gave him a long life. And you see in his life that God was constantly blessing this guy. Constantly pouring out things on this guy. But like you and me, he took his eye off the prize, and he began to look at everything around him. This is what matters. This is what's important. And he ended up blowing it in the end well we know that he was blessed we know that God blessed his kingdom it says Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea they ate and drank and were happy he ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt he had a huge kingdom to watch over and there was money coming in tribute money from all these nations that he was king over they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life and then he goes on and talks about all the provision of one day in his house 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. He had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. So, why are we doing this? Why are we even looking at this? you got to understand, this guy had it all. And where did it come from? God. He hadn't worked for it. He hadn't earned it. He didn't deserve it. It was handed to him by God. First of all, by his father, but then it was guaranteed by God. God kept blessing him. And there was peace in the land. He didn't have to fight any battles. He didn't really have any enemies. What an incredible gift to be given. And yet, what did he do with it? How did he respond to it? Well, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anybody. But. But. And this is where chapter 11 of 1 Kings begins to paint a little bit different scenario about the life of David, about the life of Solomon. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Just stop there. <laughs> Let's just stop there. This, this guy had a problem. I mean, he had a real serious problem. He was a sex addict. Doesn't say it, but I'm a male and I recognize it when I see it (laughs) listen to this along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel you shall not enter into marriage with them neither shall they with you for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods and I love this next line Solomon clung to these in love like a dog with a bone you ain't taking these from me. I got a thousand, but I, I could, I got room for more. 700 wives. I can't handle one. I get the 300 concubine part, you know. Because they're not really wives. They can't tell you what to do. What, why do concubines exist? If you don't know the answer to that, We need to talk. They exist for one reason and one reason only, and that's sex. He's got 300 of them. 700 wives, and Lord knows how many kids he's got. I don't see how he did it. And his wives turned away his heart. Duh. Yeah. Where are they all from? For the most part, I don't see Israel listed. They're foreign women. Now, he may have married them for convenience. He may have married them to make an allegiance with some other tribe or some other king. For the most part, he married them, I think, for sex. But he's married 700, and he's got 300 just for pleasure. And they turn his heart away. And it says, His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. See, we, we begin to see the drift But this didn't just happen overnight, right? He he didn't just go out one day and go, hey, hey, round up 700 wives and uh, I'll take 300 concubines. He didn't go through the drive-through. He accumulated these. From the day he became king, he was accumulating wives and concubines. And they were drawing him away. Just like God had warned. So his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Why? Because he went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. That's critical to understanding this book, guys. You've got to understand where he's coming from. He's walked away from his God. He didn't abandon God. He didn't, he didn't say, well, I don't believe in Yahweh anymore. He just added Yahweh in with all the other gods. <laughs> He had a plethora of gods. He was like making sure I got all my bases covered. Well, I got Yahweh, he's good. I got Ashtaroth, I got Moloch, I've got got all these gods. Surely somebody is going to help me when I need help. And yet, he offended God. So he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and one of the phrases we're going to see over and over again is life lived under the sun. Here's all that means, guys. Every morning you get up, you live your life under the sun, right? It starts at the east and goes down in the west, as far as I can remember. And all day long, you're living under the sun, under the rays of the sun, on this planet, in this life, in this body, in this context. That's all he means. Life lived under the sun, in this earthly arena. And what he's going to tell us is, what's it like to live 70 years under the sun the way he lived? He lived not wholly devoted to God, having other gods, having other things that he pursued beside God. So quick synopsis of his life. As I've read the book and what I get out of the book is that you see a really distorted view of life through the lens of this guy, Solomon. Very wise, wisest man who ever lived, very uh, gifted by God, had everything he needed but he had a distorted perspective. He's old. Now, that's not why his perspective's distorted. I think, if anything, our perspective gets clearer as we get older. Our eyes get dimmer, but our perspective gets clearer. And we begin to see that all the stuff we chased when we were younger doesn't really matter. And we would long for just better health. Or just a few more days. Or less aches and pains. Or we have our regrets. That's really what this is. It's him looking back on his life with regret. See, he's lived a long time at least 70 years. He's incredibly wise. He's also very worldly wise. He knows the ways of the world because he's watched it, and he's experienced it as we'll see. But he's incredibly tired. Not just physically tired from old age, he's just tired from living life and pursuing a dream that never seems to have an end. It never comes. And that's the phrase he's going to use, it's just vanity, it's futile, it's meaningless. He's made a lot of mistakes as you and I have. He's got tons of regrets. He's filled with the the feeling of futility, which is what vanity really means. Why? Because he's failed as God. And I think he has the feelings of I've failed my dad. I, I didn't live up to what my dad told me to do. I didn't do what I swore I would do. I didn't live like my dad, and I've disappointed my God. And here's the biggest thing that jumps out of me in the book of Ecclesiastes. This guy feared death. Now you may fear death. You may believe in Jesus Christ and you know there's a heaven out there and it's promised and it's wonderful and it's got streets of gold and all that. But you fear death because you're not exactly sure what it's going to be like. But what do you know? You know what this is like. You know what this can offer. You know that there's some really great things in this life, and there are things that you enjoy in this life, and you want more of this life, and you really are not looking forward to death. Neither was Solomon. But here's the deal with Solomon. Solomon didn't understand eternity like we do. Well, wait a minute. He's the son of David. He's a Hebrew. Well, here's what you need to know about the Hebrews. The Hebrews did not have and still to this day, do not have a real strong theology of the afterlife. They believe in it. They just don't know what it entails. And so therefore, they put most of their stock in this life. Everything has to happen in this life. If you think about it, if, if uh, the Jews looked at Abraham, they would look at Abraham and say, he was blessed by God. How? Sheep, cattle, oxen, children, he was blessed in this life. Blessings had to come in this life because you weren't guaranteed anything in the afterlife. You didn't know what was going to happen in the afterlife. So he fears death because he doesn't know what's on the other side of that door. And he wanted to stiff arm it, just stay away from it as long as he could. So he's on this quest. You're on a quest. I'm on a quest, right? We're, all, we're looking for something. So was Solomon. Here's some of the things he said. Verse eight of chapter one: The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's his way of saying there's never enough. I can't ever see enough. I'm never satisfied with enough. How do you get seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines? Isn't a thousand enough? Wasn't 999 enough? No. Wow. Look at her. I want her go get her eyes never satisfied hearing never filled always wanting more always questing for more he was driven he says I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me I'm I'm the brightest guy out there I mean people were traveling the Queen of Sheba they're trying from all over to meet this guy because he's so smart what will that do to your ego? But, again, never satisfied. He says, I search for my heart how to cheer my body with wine. He tried everything, and that's what we're going to see as we go through his life. I love this. Chapter 2. Here's Solomon, and you got to listen to what he says because this gives you a kind of a bird's eye view into his life and how he thought about life. He says, I made great works. I built houses, I planted vineyards, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, I bought male and female slaves, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, I also gathered for myself silver and gold." How many times does he reference God in these verses? None. What, what, what has he already begun to do? Look what I did. Look what I've built. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've acquired, what I've accumulated. And he's got the focus distorted because he's now beginning to look on himself as the end all. It's me. And I want to look at this verse, verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2, because I think it's it's appropriate for and explains a lot of what we're going to see in the life of Solomon. You're very familiar with it. It talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We all struggle with these three things. They are key to every man's life, every woman's life, every human being has ever lived and ever will live. We struggle with these three things, and I just want to unpack them for you. Here's what they mean, as far as I can tell. The desires of the flesh is talking about self-gratification. I see it, I want it, I gotta have it, and it usually, at least in Scripture, has to do with things you're not supposed to have, like somebody else's wife but I want it and you gratify yourself you fulfill the desires of the flesh I love the new living translation a craving for physical pleasure man is that not our world I gotta have pleasure at all costs at any cost even if it means I lose my family even if it means I lose my wife even if it lose my standing And this the, I gotta have it driven by the flesh and it's literally wanting what you can't have. What did God say? Do not marry these women. What did he also tell the kings of Israel? Do not multiply for yourselves wives. But I want to. I got to have them. I want what I can't have. And I'm going to self-gratify. Whatever my heart desired, I gave in to it. How about the desires of the eyes? That's self-indulgence. Treating yourself to whatever you think you want or need, self-indulgence. It's a craving for everything you see. I wanted this, I want a bit of that, I like that. And you just think you deserve it, but it really, it's, it's craving what you don't have, rather than appreciating what you already have. Have you ever bought a new car? And a week later, you're so proud of the car and you're driving down the street and you see a newer car that's a little bit nicer than the car you have and you go, crap. Man, why didn't I didn't buy that? And then you get your first door ding, you're like, I hate this car. Piece of junk. That's what this describes. And then there's the pride of life, self-glorification, pride in our achievements and our possessions. Look what I've done. I made, I built, I gathered, I did. I, it's all about me. Wanting what only God should have, which means what? Glory. i got to have glory. The other night we had a, um, uh, some couples over, young couples in our church who are millennials. My wife runs a, a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization that does work with the impoverished in Ethiopia. And uh, she's taken a ton of millennials to Ethiopia. They love to go. They love to serve. They're wonderful. But none of them give. And so she, we invited these couples to come over and we just said, explain to us why you'll go but you won't give. And it was fascinating. Now these are all believers. And, and really, when it all boiled down, here's what they said. Well, we go because we can post it on Facebook. And everybody sees it. And they congratulate us. And they think highly of us because we went. But if I give, nobody knows. At least they were honest. It's, it's self-glorification. Now... Any of you in the room, like me, who are not millennials, don't puff out your chest. Right? We all do this. Well, I'll give, but I want somebody to know. See, my wife loves to give in secret. I hate it. I want somebody to know. You know, she'll give anonymously. I go, well, why don't you tell them? I don't want them to know. Well, how how will they know we gave it if, if you don't tell them? I don't want them to know. Well, I want them to know. You know, and she goes, why, why do you need them to know Well, because they'll, they'll, know, they'll know we gave and all, but what they need is the money they don't need to know that you gave it they need to know that God gave it oh yeah you're right but see there's this thing in me that I want some accolades I want some self glorification I want people to know I'm, I'm a good guy I didn't want to give you the money but I did because my wife made me but now that I did I want you to know that I did <laughs> See, here's, here's the deal with, with Solomon. Worldliness is what happens when Satan takes what God has created and causes us to abuse it, misuse it, or worship it. Think about that. What has God given you? Your health, your marriage, your children, your job, your abilities, your creativity, this world, and what do we do? We abuse it, misuse it, and end up worshiping it. See, that's what this guy did. And that's what we're going to see over the next six weeks is that he exhibited a love of the world and it was basically idolatry. It wasn't just the fact that he was worshipping the gods of his wives and concubines. It's that he was worshipping everything but God and looking to everything but God for satisfaction and significance. It's expecting from temporal material things what we should only expect from God. And I really, over the next six weeks, I really want you to think about this. I really want you to investigate your life and think about what is it in my life that I look to for things that I should be looking to God for, and we all have them. I don't want this series to beat you up. I want it to wake you up so that you don't walk the path that Solomon walked. Why did he write this book? Well, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, but he's also an old man, has lived his life, made his mistakes, has regrets, and he doesn't want you to follow his path. And I appreciate that. And there are men in this room who are my age and maybe older who have so many stories they could tell that would help many of the younger men in this room. Don't do as I did. Don't follow my lead. Learn from me. Learn from my mistakes. So here's just a few verses that support this from Ecclesiastes. Self-gratification. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Man, how many times have I said that in my life? If not verbally in my head. Just enjoy yourself. Have a good time. Relax. It's not that important. Satisfy yourself. How about desires of the eyes? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Here's what I hate about studying the life of Solomon. I have wanted a lot of things over my life during my life I've lusted for things, I've desired things and the only thing that kept me from getting them is I was either too ugly and they didn't want me, speaking of females or I didn't have enough money to afford it Solomon had no shortage of money and so when he says whatever my eyes desired he did get it I can desire a Lamborghini I just can't buy one He could. He he could buy anything. And then he had a real problem with self-glorification. I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And that may be true and probably was true, but you don't walk around bragging about it. You don't taunt people with it. You don't put it in a book for posterity so this leads us to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 the very beginning and listen to how he opens his book this is fascinating the words of the preacher the son of David king in Jerusalem vanity of vanity says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity really that's how you're going to start your book that's really appealing and you're probably sitting there that's how we're going to start this whole series yeah because that's how he starts it how does he start out Well first of all, he he calls himself the preacher. Why in the world did he call himself the preacher? In Hebrew it's the word koaleth, and it means speaker in the assembly, and it literally just means I'm the leader. I lead these people, I stand before these people. When he built the temple and dedicated the temple, he spoke before the people. That's really all it means. He's in a position of authority, and they listen, and Ecclesiastes is the Greek translation of that Hebrew word. That's where we get the name of the book, but he's the speaker. He speaks to the people. He's kind of a preacher. He's a minister. He's a shepherd. He's a leader. And he wants them to listen. So what's he saying? He goes, listen to me, guys. I'm your king. I'm your shepherd. I'm your preacher. I'm your leader. Listen to what I have to say because I don't have much longer to live, and I want you to hear what I've learned in 70 years of long life. And what does he say? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. See, that's going to be the theme of the book. What's he mean? The Greek word is, or the Hebrew word is habel. It means lacking in real substance. It has no substance to it. This life lacks substance. It has the idea of no value, no permanence, no significance. See, guys, we live in this world and we think all of this is what really matters. All the stuff, all, all the, everything around us is what really matters. And here's Solomon trying to tell you and me that no, it doesn't. I've had it. I've I've had it all. Literally, I've had it all. It doesn't matter. It doesn't add up. It's valueless. It's empty. It won't ever satisfy. And we need to hear that message because here's what the world's telling you oh, yes, it will. What did did, uh, Satan say to Adam and Eve in the garden? This, it will satisfy. It will make you like God. It will bring you satisfaction and meaning. But he says, no, it's like a mist. It's like trying to grab a vapor. You'll never succeed. You'll be grasping an air. And he's going to, all through the book, he's going to support this idea that this life is meaningless. He says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And he describes it as striving after wind. Here's what that literally means. It means vexation of spirit. Now that sounds a little old-fashioned. What's vexation of spirit? It simply means longing for breath. You ever ever run out of breath where you just can't get your breath? It's a horrible feeling, right? It's like, I, I can't get my breath. I can't. If you suffer from asthma or some other breathing difficulty, it's a horrible thing to not be able to get your breath. And that's how he describes life in this, on this world. Under the sun, living without God. It's like, not being able to get your breath, grasping for air. He also calls it a great evil. Wow! That's a pretty negative statement. This life is a great evil. Here's what he means by that. It literally means many evils. It's like full of evils. rab is the Hebrew, and it means very wicked. It's just everywhere you turn, it's wicked. It's full of wickedness. It's unpleasant. It's disagreeable. It may go great for a while, but there's always the other shoe to drop, right? We almost live that way, like, man, it's, I haven't had something really foul happen lately. What's, what's, something's coming. I just know it. This is too good. And, and he had just learned that this is the way it is. It's abundant misery. Wait a minute. You're the wisest man, the richest man, the most powerful man, and this is your view of life? Yeah at the end of his life because of the way he lived his life then he calls it an unhappy business literally an evil travail this one's kind of interesting to me because he just says it's bad business overall no matter how you look at it no no matter how you approach it it's just bad business it's a lousy way to live your life on this earth apart from God or godlessly as if God doesn't exist. And it's harmful. See, he had learned it's harmful. He had learned it hurts. And there are ramifications and there's payback and there's, there's consequences for decisions. And yet we see, he goes, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Listen to the passage, just look at what he says and how he references, first of all, my eyes. Goes back to the lust of the eyes. He talks about my heart. That inner drive within you. What drives your decision making? What makes you go after what you go after? Why do you work so hard? It's coming from your heart. He talks about his toil, my effort. Constantly he's talking about my toil. The toil under the sun. Everything we do. Everything we try to strive for. And then ultimately he talks about my reward. See, you do what you do to get a reward. I don't know what, <clears throat> what you do. But if you didn't get paid, you wouldn't do it. You want a reward. You want something for what you do. And he's saying we live our lives under the sun for a reward. All my toil, all my effort, what I lust for, what I long for. But it it begs the question, but what would Jesus say to Solomon? See, one of the things that you have to realize when you study the book of Ecclesiastes, because it's Old Testament, is don't lift it out of the Bible. Don't say, well, I'm going to study the book of Ecclesiastes and only the book of Ecclesiastes and not look at the rest of the Bible because what do we know that Solomon didn't know? Jesus. The resurrection. Redemption. The Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. We know things he didn't know, didn't have access to, and he was ignorant of. So if you just read this book and you don't include the rest of the books of the Bible, you get a warped, limited perspective. The Bible is meant to be read as a whole. And that's what we're going to try to do. So what would Jesus say to Solomon? What would the Savior say to the preacher? How would he address this? Well, in Matthew 5, 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is diametrically opposed to the way Solomon lived his life. What did he hunger and thirst for? Obviously women obviously wine, obviously power, obviously wealth, more wisdom, never could have enough wisdom, never was smart enough, always wanted more, even though God made him wise, he wanted more wisdom. He never found it, and he hungered and thirsted for everything but what? Righteousness. A right standing with God. How about this? I love this, Isaiah 55, back in the Old Testament. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come and take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that doesn't give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. This is God speaking to the Israelites and offering them a feast, a spiritual feast. Come to me. Seek me. But where does Solomon go he bought slaves he bought concubines he he spent his money on food he built palaces he built gardens he built pools he built everything he could think of and he never got what he was looking for he was still hungry and thirsty he had it all but he never had enough isn't that a horrible way to live your life never have enough He made gods out of the good gifts of God. He worshipped the things that God gave him. Who made him wise? God. Who gave him wealth and power? God. And yet he ended up worshipping those things rather than God. And all his accomplishments, all his accumulated wealth, left him feeling void. And here's what I know. In this room, there's at least one guy besides me who sometimes feels empty unfulfilled like you're chasing the wind like it's a vapor and I can't get my hands on it I just can't get enough, I'm never satisfied you got that raise and the raise wasn't enough you got the promotion, the pro- promotion's not enough because there's still somebody above you and you're constantly you're the, you're the mouse on the treadmill just running never getting where you want to go so tonight what I want you to do around the tables and and we don't really have official table shepherds. Some of you are here and that's great. So somebody's going to have to step up and speak up and lead this discussion. But here's your questions for tonight. Those three characteristics we looked at, self-gratification, self-indulgence, self-glorification, which one has marked your life? I know what you're thinking, I'm not going to share that with anybody. (laughs) Then point to the guy across the table and say, I know his his self-gratification, it's all over him. No, just just share it, be honest, you're not going to surprise anybody, and and the truth is we struggle with all three. And then secondly, if a hunger and thirst for righteousness brings satisfaction, why do we waste our time pursuing satisfaction everywhere else? Why? What, What drives us to do that? So those are your two discussion questions for tonight. And before you leave, before you walk out the door tonight, make sure you pray for each other that you'll be here each week, you'll do the homework, you'll come prepared, and you'll allow God to speak to you through Solomon and learn from his mistakes. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Solomon. Father, I can relate to Solomon. I may not have had his wealth, and I certainly don't have his wisdom, but I've certainly made the same kind of mistakes. And I don't want to live my life that way. I don't want to live feeling unfulfilled and, and dissatisfied. So, Father, speak to me, speak to every man in this room over the next six weeks that we might become men who are addicted to you and not to the things of this world. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.